All right, well, we're there in uh, Genesis chapter number 17. And if you remember, uh, last week we dealt with uh, this idea of uh, Sarah gave this idea to Abraham about having Hagar going unto him, and Ishmael was born, and we talked about those things. In this chapter, we have God kind of come back to them, and he's uh, reiterating some of the things of the covenant, and he does some uh, new things that we haven't seen in Scripture up to this point, talking about the Word of God in Genesis. And in fact, I want you to notice there are uh, three, three things I want to show you out of this passage tonight. The first one is this, for those of you who like to take notes. Number one, we see a renaming in the covenant. This is the first time we see this in the Bible, but uh, in the Bible you will see that often people are given new names. And here we see that Abraham is uh, given a new name, Abraham, and Sarah is given a new name, Sarah. You're there in Genesis uh, 17. Look down at verse number 5 just real quickly. Notice what the Bible says. It says, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram. Up to this point, he's been Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. And that those two letters, H-A, were added to make his name Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. If you skip down to verse number 15, it says, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai, up to this point she's been called Sarai, thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. So they replaced, he raised the I there with an H, and uh, shall her name be. Now, I want to just talk to you just real quickly about this idea of names. Because I, I could get up here tonight, and I could tell you all sorts of things, and I could tell you that the name Abraham, you know, and you could, you listen to five different people, they'll tell you five different answers, and people will say the name Abraham meant to be fruitful, and, and he wasn't, and that was an embarrassment to him, or it means to be a father. And I'm not saying that those things aren't true, but here's what you need to understand. We don't know that because the Bible doesn't really tell us that. And when it comes to, like, the definition of names, you can only really go off of what the Bible says and what the Bible emphasizes and what the Bible tells us these names mean. A lot of times people want to go back to the Hebrew, go back to the Greek, and they don't speak those languages, and they just make stuff up. And it makes for good preaching. I mean, I could get up here and tell you in the original language, Abram meant, you know, uh, that you're not able to have a child, but then he added those two letters, not means you can't have a child. But look, we don't really know if all that is true. But here's what we do know is that in the Bible, often when names are changed in Scripture, the name, the definition of names, look, I don't know what those names mean. I don't think anybody really knows what a lot of those names mean unless God just spells it out for us. But what we do know is that often when God is getting ready to change someone's identity, he will change their name when their name, whatever it means, they've lived a, a type of lifestyle that allowed their identity to be known as one thing, and God's getting ready to change that. In the Bible, sometimes we see that he will change their name to show that he's getting to change their identity. Let me show you what I mean by that. You're there in Genesis 17. Just flip a couple of pages back to Genesis 15. Now, I don't know what the name Abram means. I'm sure it means something about fathers. I, I, I don't doubt that, but I can't Show you that from the Bible. Now, maybe, I'm not, maybe there's something I'm missing. If you can show me a verse in, the Bible, in our King James Bible that says that that's what it means, I'd love to know that, and I, I'll preach that. But here's the thing. Here's what we know. If you would have asked Abraham, if you would have asked Abram, you know, what identifies you? 
What is your big thing? What is your big deal? What is your big problem? What is it that, that you feel like I, I, it identifies you? Here's what we, he would have told you. Are you there in Genesis 15? Look at verse number 2. Remember when, when, Abraham, when Abraham came back from the battle of, of Sodom and he'd won their liberty? Look at verse 2. And Abram said, this is Abram speaking to God. Wouldn't you say that if you're praying to God and asking God that that's pretty heavy on your heart? Well, here Abram is praying to God, and notice what he says. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? God just got done telling Abram in verse 1. He told him, hey, Abram, I'm your exceeding and great reward. I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to give you the things that you want. And then notice what Abram said. He says, what wilt thou give me? I mean, at this point, he can say, God, you know, it's almost a little bit of a Solomon moment where he can say, God, I want this. God, I want that. God, give me, you know, whatever. But notice what he says. He says, what wilt thou give me seeing I go childless? See, Abram's big deal in life was that he didn't have an heir. He didn't have a child. In fact, when God told him, I'm your exceeding great reward, Abram said, I don't want anything, God. The only thing I want is a child. He said, what will thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. Now look at chapter 16, just one page over. If you would have asked Sarai, Sarai, what's the big deal in your life? Sarai, what's the big problem in your life? Sarai, what's that big thing that you identify with, that identifies you? What is that? I think here's what she would have said to you, Genesis 16 and verse 2. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my, uh, my maid. It may be that I may obtain a ch- children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. See, it was such a big deal to Sarai that she didn't have a child, that she was even willing to give her handmaid as a wife to Abram in order to have a child. This was a big deal in her life. This was a big deal in Abram's life. And I don't know what the name Abram means. I could tell you what, you know, I could take a guess or I could tell you what people say. I don't know exactly percent what Sarai means, but I can tell you this. If you were to talk to Abram, if you were to talk to Sarai, if you would have said, what identifies you? What is your identity? What do you see your identity as? Here's what they would have said, childless, barren, unfruitful. And then God comes in, if you go back, to, if you go to Genesis 17, and he says, Abraham, I'm giving you this new covenant. And he said, obviously, I have to reinstate it and I have to refocus you on it because you've gone and messed around and got, and got Ishmael involved and got Hagar involved. And he said, I'm giving you this covenant. And here's what I want you to understand, Abraham. The, there's a renaming in the covenant. There's a new identity. What God was telling Abram is, when I established my covenant with you, I established a new identity in you. Notice Genesis 17, verse 1. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine... The Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. That's what God wants from all of us. He wants us to walk before him and he wants us to be perfect. The word perfect means mature, complete. He wants to be well-rounded. He wants to be growing in the Lord. Look at verse 2. And notice what he says. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. Notice the emphasis. He said, I'm going to multiply you. Look at verse 3. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my 
covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father, notice the emphasis, of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for, the word for means because, a father of many nations have I made thee. I think the name Abraham means a father of many nations, because God said, hey, I'm going to call you Abraham, because I'm going to make you a father of many nations, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful. If you would have asked Abraham, are you fruitful? He would have said, no, I'm, I'm not fruitful. He said, well, I don't have a child, but he said, I'm going to make the exceeding fruitful and I will make, notice the emphasis, nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee. And God said unto Abraham, uh, 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 skip down to verse number seven, uh, 15 there, excuse me, look at verse uh, 15. And God said unto Abraham, as for Sarai, thy wife, Thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be, and I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be, notice the emphasis, a mother of nations, kings of people shall be of her. Here's what I want you to understand. God says, you, whatever your names mean, he says, you identified yourself as childless. You identified yourself as barren. You identified yourself as unfruitful. He said, I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to give you a new name. And in that name, what that means is you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to bear many nations and many kings will come from you. And what I want you to say is that God gives them a new identity in the covenant. Go to Genesis 32. Look at verse 28. Let me give you just uh, several examples of this in Scripture. Genesis 32, look at verse 28. Remember Jacob, Abraham's grandson, is also renamed. It's interesting that Abraham is renamed, Jacob is renamed, Isaac is not renamed because Isaac is named by God. God gave the name Isaac to Isaac. Genesis 32, look at verse 28. Notice what the Bible says, and he, and he said... Thy name shall be called no more Jacob. Now, look, I'm not sure what the name Jacob means, but I can tell you this. If you would have asked people who knew Jacob, what do you think about Jacob? You know what they would have said? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a trickster. His, his identity was that of someone who lied and stole and was out for himself. But notice when God, when, when he deals with God and he wrestles with God, and we're not going to talk about it tonight, we'll talk about it when we get to the life of Jacob. But when he begins to come back to God, God says to Jacob, and he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince has thou power with God and with men. You say, what, what does the name Israel mean? Here's what it means. Uh, you're a prince that has power with God and with man. That's what the Bible says. That's what the name means. And has prevailed. And, and God gave him a new identity. His old identity was liar, stealer, a deceiver, trickster. His new identity is prince, having power with God, having power with men, prevailing with God. That's what his new identity was. Go to the book of John in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, look at John 1.42. Let me give you another example. Remember our good friend Simon? John 1.42, notice what the Bible says. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus had beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. And you say, what is that? I, I, all I can tell you is this. Simon was a fisherman. Cephas was a fisher of men. 
Simon was just a man doing nothing with his life, just going about. And Cephas was a great apostle of God. I'm just telling you, when God takes a man, when God... And look, I understand the New Testament covenant is different than the Old Testament Abrahamic covenant. But when you enter into a covenant with God, often with that comes, and it's not often, actually, every single time with that comes a new identity and a new name. Let me give you another example. Go to Acts 13. Look at verse 9. You're there in John, just one book. Look over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 13, and look at verse number 9. Notice what the Bible says, Acts 13 and verse 9. Acts chapter 13 and verse 9, the Bible says this, Then Saul, remember our friend Saul? Now, if you would ask people, who's Saul? They would have said the persecutor. They said the guy that rounds people up, the, the, the guy that hates Christianity, the guy that's putting people to death, the guy that's putting people in prison. And it says about Saul, then Saul, but he got saved and he got right. And notice what we see there in parentheses, who also is called Paul. You ask people, who's Paul? They'll say the great missionary. They'll say the great preacher. They'll say the great apostle. See, often names are changed in Scripture to show us a new identity. They used to be a liar. Now they're a prince with God. They used to be a persecutor. Now they're a preacher. They used to be unfruitful. Now they're fruitful. And I want you to understand this. The Bible tells us in Revelation 2.17, the Bible says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It says, To him that overcometh, that's you and I, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And he says, and I will give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. We sing that song, there's a new name written down in glory. You know why? Because when you got saved, God gave you a new name. Now, I don't know what that name is. And I don't know what my name is. And we'll know when we get to heaven, I guess, one of these days. But the Bible tells us that God has given us a new name. You say, well, why is that? Here's why. When you entered into the covenant. Now, we're not talking about the Abrahamic covenant. We're talking about New Testament believers now. But when you entered into the covenant of salvation, when you entered into a covenant with Christ, God gave you a new name because he gave you a new identity. See, the Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So you can sit there and say, well, in my past, I was known as a drug addict. In my past, I was known as a drunkard. In my past, I was known as a fornicator. In my past, I was known as a stealer, as a liar, as a robber. But I'm here to tell you that when you enter into the covenant with God, he renames you. Why? Because he gives you a new identity. He says, you don't have to be known as what you used to be known. He says, you're a new creature in Christ. He says, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And it's interesting as we see God coming to Abraham. He says, Abraham, you think of yourself as a failure. You think of yourself as, as, as unfruitful. You think of yourself as unbear- uh, uh, you're not bearing Sarah. You think you're not uh, fruitful. You don't think you can bear. But he said, I'm going to call you the father of many nations. He said, I'm going to give you a new identity. He said, I'm going to give you a new name in this covenant. So the first thing we see here is a renaming in the covenant. But I'd like to notice, number two, not only do we see a renaming in the covenant, but we see a restating of the covenant. And I want you to notice what God says here. And look at verse number 7 of Genesis 17. Genesis 17 and verse number 7. People will often like to read these verses And they like to pick out certain parts of it, but they don't look at all of it. Notice what it says in verse 7. God is restating the covenant for Abraham. And he says, and I will establish my covenant between me, that's God, 
and thee, that's Abraham, and thy seed after thee in their generations for, I want you to notice this word, for an everlasting covenant. God says the covenant I'm going to give you has the potential of being an everlasting covenant or it is an everlasting covenant, but I want you to notice the Abrahamic covenant, not like the New Testament covenant, was uh, hinging on certain things. There was conditions to it. Notice what he says. He says, look at verse 7 again, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Notice what he says. To be a God unto thee, talking about Abraham, and to thy seed after thee. Now notice what he says. Look at verse 8. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land. We hear a lot about that today. Christians like to talk a lot about the land that belongs to the Jews and the the land that God promised them. But I want you to notice something. God said, I'm going to give you that land. He said, in fact, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. You can have that land for everlasting, but it's all conditioned upon this. If I am a God unto thee and to thy seed. Look at verse 8. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land, wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Don't miss this. And I will be their God. See, you need to understand this. And you, go, go to the book of John just real quickly. Here's what you need to understand. The covenant of the land was conditioned on the fact that the Israelites in the land acknowledged the God of the Bible as their God. And that's what people don't get today. Today you got these Christians saying, that land belongs to Israel. We got to give it back to them and we got to make sure they're protected. But listen, God said it'll be yours. And in fact, it'll be yours forever as long as I'm your God. But as you read the Old Testament, you will notice that every time the children of Israel forsook God, God did not bless them. In fact, every time they forsook God, God allowed another nation to come in and take over the land and capture the land and put them under subjection. And then they would get right and then they would repent and then they would call back to God and then they would ask God and they would basically go back and say, God, will you be our God? And and, and he would hear them and he would deliver them and they had the land as long as they had God. See, the land came with God. It's not just their land, just no matter what, no matter what they believe, no matter what God they serve, it's their land. No, it's hinging on the fact that they were supposed to be serving Jehovah God, the God of the Bible. Now go to John chapter 5. You say, well, why? See, that land isn't theirs today. It doesn't belong to them. So, well, they're God's chosen people. It's their land if they were serving the God of the Bible. But they're not serving the God of the Bible. They've rejected the God of the Bible, and therefore, they have voided the covenant. It's no longer their land. And in fact, all throughout the Old Testament, they kept rejecting God, rejecting God, rejecting God. God was sent a prophet. God was sent a prophet. God was sent a prophet. But eventually, God sent a son, and they rejected his son. And God said, you crossed the line. You've gone too far. He said, this is no longer your land anymore. That's why Jesus said, the Bible says, and I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer, outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you there in John chapter 5? Look at verse number 45. John chapter 5 and verse 45, notice what the Bible says. John 5, 45, notice what Jesus said. He said, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. Look at verse 46. For had ye believed Moses, 
He says, if you would have believed Moses, ye would have believed me. See, look, the Jews today who say they reject Jesus Christ, here's the thing, if they reject Christ, they reject Moses. Because Jesus said, if ye believed Moses, you would have believed me. He talks in other places, look what it says. He says, for he wrote of me. In other places, it tells us where Jesus would be expounding upon scriptures to his disciples. And the Bible says that he began at the law of Moses. Talking about how Moses and the book of Psalms and how these places all were about Christ. Look at verse 47. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my word? So here, God, here's what Jesus is saying. If you believe Moses, you would have believed in Christ. So here's what we can take from that. If you don't believe Christ, you don't believe Moses. You can sit there and say, we follow the laws of Moses, and we follow the Pentateuch. and we." But look, if you're not following Christ, you've rejected the God of Moses and the God that Moses wrote about. You're there in John 5. Go to John chapter 8. Look at verse 39. Just a couple of pages over. John chapter 8 and verse 39. Notice what Jesus said. They answered and said unto him, John 8, 39, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto him, unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. He, said, he, doesn't, he doesn't say you are Abraham. He said, if you were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. Notice what he says. He says, this did not Abraham. He says, you're not doing the works of Abraham. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He said, Abraham was happy to hear of Jesus Christ, was happy to hear the gospel, was happy to hear of salvation. Go back to verse number 19, because verse number 19 kind of puts it all together. Look at what he says, John 8, 19. Then said they unto him, where is thy father? Jesus answered, ye neither know me nor my father, if ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. See, you can't disconnect the two. If you do not believe in the son, then you don't believe in the father. And if you rejected Christ, you've rejected the father. And here's the thing. If you rejected Christ, you rejected Moses, you've rejected Abraham. So when these unbelieving Jews today are saying, we don't believe in the New Testament, we don't believe in Jesus Christ, we don't believe in salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, but we still follow Abraham. No, no, no. They're not following Abraham. They're not following the God of Abraham. And therefore, they have voided the contract. The covenant no longer applies to them because the covenant was hinged on the fact they don't just get the land. God didn't just say you have the land. God says you have the land as long as I'm your God. And when they rejected Christ, they rejected God. And when they rejected God, they lost the land. It's no longer their land anymore. So we need to be very careful to just, you know, these Christians today is just saying, that's their land, it belongs to them. It belongs to them as long as they are worshiping God, but they're not worshiping God, and, and their, their time has passed. They've been, they, they can no longer go back, and, and that's a whole other sermon, and I don't have time to go there. But in this passage, we see, if you can get back to uh, Genesis uh, 17, we see a renaming in the covenant, and we see a restating of the covenant. Let me give you the third point, and this is the point I want to spend most of the sermon on, but we won't, we won't be too long, Lord willing. Number three, I want you to notice there's a representation for the covenant. There's a representation for the covenant. Notice Genesis 17 and verse 9. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Notice what he says. 
Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. So the first time circumcision is brought up in Scripture. And God is basically introducing circumcision to uh, Abraham and to the children of Israel. He says, every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And I want you to notice there's, there's a couple of things we can learn about circumcision. Let me show them to you real quickly. The first thing is this. Circumcision was an outward representation of an inward condition. No, even all the way, you say that's a New Testament thing. No, that's, that's always, that's, it's always been that way. And even here when God gave them circumcision, notice what God said in verse number 11. He says, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token. You see that word token? The word token means a visible or tangible representation. In other places in our Bible, that the same word that's translated token in Genesis 17, 11, in other places is translated as the word sign or ensign. And here he says, ye shall be circumcised, uh, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. See, here's what he was saying. He wasn't saying that circumcision was the covenant. He was saying that circumcision was a sign or a representation. It was a token. It was a visible, tangible representation of the covenant that we already have. He said we have the covenant. Circumcision is just a sign of that covenant. Are you following what I'm saying? So circumcision was an outward representation of an inward condition. See, in their minds and in their hearts, they were uh, circumcised, and they were the children of God. But the physical circumcision just expressed that outwardly. Let me give you some examples. Go to Deuteronomy chapter number 30. You're there in Genesis. Just going to go past Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, and look at verse number 6. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, the Bible says this. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, the Bible says, And the Lord thy God... Notice what it says, will circumcise thine heart. Do you see that? Because people say today like, oh, well, in the Old Testament, it's all about the flesh. and the New Testament, it's all about the heart. No, it's always been about the heart. Amen. It's always been about the heart. And guess what? It's always been inward and outward, New and Old Testament. God cares about the inside and God cares about the outside. And in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, it says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed you say, what does that mean? To love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. He said, I want you circumcised in your heart. And see, here's the thing. The outward physical circumcision was an outward expression of an inward condition. My heart was circumcised to God. In my heart, I love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. And then they were circumcised outwardly to express an inward Condition. Go to Jeremiah chapter number 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, towards the end of the Old Testament, you got Isaiah, Jeremiah. You go past Lamentations, Ezekiel, you went a little too far. Jeremiah chapter 4. You see, this is found throughout the Bible, through the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're, we're told, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And you say, well, is that different than the Old Testament? No, in the Old Testament, he said that you were circumcised in the heart. He said it was always about the inside. Are you there in Jeremiah 4? Look at verse 4. Notice what he says. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your heart. Do you see that? 
ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Now, now go, 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 just real quickly, go to Romans chapter 4. If you had your place in John or Acts, wherever you were at, just go past John and Acts into the book of Romans. And when you get there, keep your place there in Romans because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it or we're going to come back near it. But go to Romans chapter 4. Remember in Romans 4, we're given a biblical commentary of what we've been reading about in Genesis about uh, Abraham. Notice what Romans 4.11 says. And he, talking about Abraham, Romans 4.11, and he received the sign. See that word sign there? That's the same word token. It's a visible outward representation. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. Okay, what did he have yet being uncircumcised? He had the faith in his heart. But he received the sign as an outward expression of what he already had in his heart. Are you understand what I'm saying? Look what he says. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, so he says, circumcision was something you did on the outside to show the inside what was already done in your heart. The faith was already in your heart. The love was already in your heart. It was an outward expression of an inward condition. Let me show you something else about circumcision. Head back to Genesis 17. I said, number one, in regards to circumcision, it was an outward expression of an inward condition. Number two, circumcision was meant to identify you with God and God's people. Circumcision was meant to identify you with God and God's people. Are you there in Genesis 17? Look at verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. And he that is eight, year, uh, eight years, good night, eight days old shall be circumcised. I want you to notice these words, among you. See that word among you? Every man child in your generations, he that is born in the house, he said it doesn't matter if they're born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant, and the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised. Someone said, I will not circumcise. In the Old Testament, that soul shall be Cut off from his people, he hath broken my covenant. Here's what he's saying. If you're not circumcised, you're not part of the congregation. He said, if you're not circumcised, you're not part of God's people. In the Old Testament, you had to be circumcised to be part of God's people because, yes, circumcision was an outward expression of an inward condition, but it was also something that was used to identify you with God and with God's People, you're there in Genesis, go to the book of Exodus. Let me just give you some references to look at. Exodus chapter number 12, look at verse number 43. Exodus 12 and verse 43. Remember that in Exodus 12, Moses is establishing the Passover. And he's giving the rules as to who can take the Passover. Notice what he says in Exodus 12 and verse 43. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of... Remember, ordinance is always referring to something that's symbolic. This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger, the word stranger just means foreigner. He's saying you must be an Israelite. You must be part of the congregation. You must be part of the group. There shall no stranger eat thereof. 
But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then he, sh- uh, he, uh, then shall he eat thereof. So notice he says, if you bought a servant, they can't partake of the Lord's Supper. But when they get circumcised, then they can partake. Why? Because circumcision identifies them with God and with God's people, so they can partake of the ordinances of God's people. Doesn't that sound like the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is for believers. Isn't the Lord's Supper a New Testament uh, continuation of the Old Testament Passover? Notice what he says in verse 45. The foreigner and hired servant shall not eat thereof. Now, just for sake of time, skip down to verse 48. I want you to notice what he says. And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee. So this is a foreigner who is spending time in the land, but he's not becoming part of Israel. He's not converting to becoming a Jew. He's, he's, he's sojourning, but he's not integrating. He's not becoming part of God's people. Notice what it says. And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover to the Lord, he says, let all his males be circumcised. If he wants to keep the Passover, everyone has to be circumcised. And then once he's circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, notice, and he shall be as one that is born in the land. See, you could have came into the land as a sojourner, said, I like this God, I like these people, I want to serve the God of the Bible, and then he said, get circumcised, and then you will be part of the congregation because circumcision was meant to identify you with God and with God's people. And it says, if they got circumcised, then he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. Go to Joshua chapter number 5. You're there in Exodus. You're going to go past Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, into the book of Joshua. Let me give you a third thing about circumcision. So we saw that circumcision was an outward expression of an inward condition. We saw that circumcision is something that identifies you with God and with God's people. But let me give you a third one. Circumcision was meant to separate you from the world. Circumcision was meant to separate you. See, it was meant to separate you unto God and separate you from the world. Are you there in Joshua chapter 5? Look at verse number 3. Now remember, when we're we're in Joshua, we're fast-forwarding hundreds of years. The children of Israel have left Egypt, and they've been journeying around the desert for 40 years. And now, with Joshua leading them, they're entering into the promised land. But before they can start conquering the land, Joshua has to take care of a few things. Notice what the Bible says in verse 3. Joshua chapter 5 and verse 3. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskin. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now, all the people that came out were circumcised. He says the people that came out of Egypt, in Egypt, they had been circumcised. But all the people that were born in the wilderness, remember they were in the wilderness for 40 years. He said the children that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. So they had all these children or these men that had been born in the wilderness, they had not been circumcised, so Joshua had to circumcise them. Now, I want you to notice, we'll just skip a few verses, but look at verse 9. Notice what God says about this event when Joshua circumcised them. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. 
He said, you know, when you weren't circumcised, you were like those Egyptians. You were like the world. But he says, now you've been circumcised. He says, now you've been separated. Now you've been identified with God and with God's people. But you've also been separated from the world. He says, now this day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. So here's what I want you to say, okay? Old Testament believers. We're talking about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God established circumcision, and there was three major reasons for circumcision. One, it was an outward expression of an inward condition. Two, it was meant to identify you with God and with God's people. You were not allowed to partake of the Passovers. You were not allowed to be part of the congregation if you had not been circumcised. But thirdly, it separated you from the world. You were now different from the world. He said, I rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Now, Let's talk about circumcision in the New Testament believer. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Actually, I'm sorry. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's go there first. If you kept your place in Romans, you got Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Notice what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 18. Because today you, you, people ask the question, do we have to be circumcised as New Testament believers? Let me tell you right now, the answer is no. No New Testament believer needs to be circumcised. That was an Old Testament practice, and it's been done away with. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 18, notice what the Bible says. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Now you say, well, how's that possible? It's not possible. He's just trying to make a point. He says, look, if you're already circumcised, then don't go get some weird transgender operation to become uncircumcised, all right? And then he says, is any called uncircumcised? He said, you were saved and you're not circumcised? He says, let him not be circumcised. So today you got people saying, oh, if you haven't been circumcised, you know, if you're going to be saved, you got to become circumcised. No, the Bible says, if you were called in uncircumcision, let him not be circumcised. Look at verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God. For New Testament believers, do we need to be circumcised? No. It's nothing. It's not needed. It's not not for it. Now, here's what you need to understand. What happened in the New Testament is that Old Testament, you know, uh, the the, the Pharisees and, and the Judaizers in the New Testament, they took the Old Testament teachings of circumcision, and here's what they did. They turned the token of the covenant into the covenant. They said, circumcision is not a representation of the covenant. Circumcision is the covenant. And they were teaching that people had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, Paul says in Galatians 5.1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And he says, Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. For I, testif- for I Paul, testify unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. That's what the Bible says. He says, behold, I say unto you, he, he, he said, well, let, let's look at it together. Go, go to Galatians 5. You're there in 1 Corinthians, just uh, one book over, Galatians 5. In verse 3, he says, for I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. And here's what you got to understand. Whenever someone tells you you must keep any aspect of the law in order to be saved, you make yourself a debtor to keep the whole law. That's why he says, Christ shall profit you nothing. Look at verse 4. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. He says, you are fallen from grace. He says, look, it's it's not keeping of the law that saves us. It's not being circumcised that saves you. He says, if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you 
Nothing. So as New Testament believers, do we need to be circumcised? No. Don't be, if you're called an uncircumcision, don't get circumcised. He says circumcision is nothing. He says circumcision is not needed. In fact, if you do it to be spiritual, he says Christ shall profit. If you're doing it because you think you need to do it to be saved, he says Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, let me show you something real quickly. There's something interesting in the, in, in the New Testament. You're there in, in Galatians. Uh, flip over to the book of Colossians. You got Galatians, you're going to go to Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And here's what's interesting, all right? In the New Testament, so in the Old Testament, we have the Passover, right? And the New Testament continuation of the Passover is what we call the Lord's Supper. Now, in the Old Testament, we have circumcision. And in the New Testament, we have something similar. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's not similar in the, same, in the sense that it's, 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 it's the same thing or even something close to that. But as far as the applications, they're the same. And that's baptism. Because are you there in Colossians 2? You're going to say, well, what does circumcision have to do with baptism? Here's the thing. In Colossians 2, God in the New Testament links these two things together. Notice what he says. Colossians 2, look at verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, what's the circumcision made without hands? That's the circumcision of the heart. That's the circumcision of faith. All right? Now, notice what he says. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Remember, the reproach of, it, of Egypt has been rolled away. It represents a separation of sin. Notice, by the circumcision of Christ. Now notice, in verse 11, he's talking about circumcision. He said, you're circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. He said, you put off the body of sin. He said, you've, been, you've had the circumcision of Christ. Now notice verse 12, buried with him in baptism. Do you see that? And when he connects these two verses, he connects these two thoughts, and he says, circumcision is connected to baptism, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith of the operation of God, and who hath raised him from the dead. You say, well, what does baptism have to do with circumcision? Well, here's the thing. Circumcision is an outward expression of an inward condition. Guess what baptism is? An outward expression of an inward condition. I get baptized, the Bible says that we get baptized in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, just like in the New Testament, you had the Judaizers who had turned the token of circumcision into the token of the covenant, into the covenant. Even today, we have people that will teach, you have to get baptized to be saved. And they take in the token of baptism to become salvation. But baptism doesn't save you. But it's a picture it represents, it's a picture of the death. We have a baptism tonight. When, 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 we have, when we baptize somebody and they are standing there or they are sitting there upright and the water crosses their body, that's a picture of the cross. When we take them under the water, that's a picture of the death. When they come up out of the water, that's a picture of the resurrection. What they are doing outwardly is they are expressing a faith that they have inwardly. They're saying, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried and rose from the grave to pay for my sin. See, circumcision was an outward expression of an inward condition. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward condition. Circumcision was meant to identify you with God and God's people. Guess what? Baptism identifies you with God and God's people. Because when you get baptized, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 2.41, the Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. They were added to the church when they had been baptized. Why? Because baptism identifies you with God and with God's people. Baptism was meant to separate you from the or circumcision was meant to separate you from the world. Guess what? Baptism is meant to separate you from the world. 
It not only shows that you believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, but what you are saying when you get baptized is that my old man is dead and my new man is risen. Remember what we were talking about? That new identity? You're saying, I'm putting off the old man. I'm putting off the old sin. I will now begin to actively walk with God. I will now become a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm separating myself from the world unto Christ. So you see how baptism has similar application in the New Testament as Old Testament circumcision did in the Bible. Now, look, I'm, I'm thankful to live in the New Testament Christianity. I'm glad that we don't have to go to these new converts and say, and I got this sharp knife. <laughs> Let's get you, you know, you got to get you identified with God and God's people. We probably wouldn't have 40 circumcisions, you know what I mean, in our bulletin to be talking about, you know. The ladies are like, I don't care. Do it! You know, look, look it's not, I'm glad to be a new says I'd much rather just be dunked in water, you know what I mean? And, uh, but but it, it, it follows the same applications. It's an outward expression of an inward condition. It's meant to identify you with God and with God's people. And it's meant to separate you from the world. So we see in this passage, and we'll, we'll finish here. We, we'll, we'll get to the rest of it later. A, rema- a, a renaming in the covenant. They received a new identity in their covenant. They received a new name. And what's similar about the Old Testament covenant to the New Testament salvation is that you and I receive a new identity in Christ. They, God gives us a restating of the covenant. It was conditional upon the fact that they were actually following God. They don't just get the land no matter what. They must be following. And they rejected Christ, so they rejected God. And then, of course, we see the representation for the covenant. Let's bow our heads